Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Two years on, who is winning the Russia-Ukraine war? Maybe it's neither. From the latest numbers, it seems, big U.S. corporations have been carrying the day. A fact sheet released last month by the U.S. State Department shows that U.S. arms transfers and defense trade hit a record $240 billion U.S. billion last year, up 16% year-on-year, as, quote-unquote, countries sought to replenish stocks sent to Ukraine and prepare for major conflicts. U.S. President Joe Biden has bluntly told media that U.S. aid to other countries, so-called aid to other countries and regions, supports American jobs through arms production. Meanwhile, U.S. energy exports to Europe have also shot up as Russian supplies were cut off. Is the U.S. profiteering from the war in Ukraine, whether or not inadvertently? Is peace then bad for business? What's the implication for China? Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Li Xin. I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Zhou Bo, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Strategy and Security of Tsinghua University. From Bangkok, Thailand, Brian Berletic, former U.S. Marine and Geopolitical Analyst. And from Washington, D.C., Peter Kutznick, History Professor and Director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at uh, American University. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So, as I mentioned, this, this number, a record, of uh, 240 billion US dollars of arms sales by the United States in 2023, up 16%. That includes two chunks. Foreign military sales, which is 81 billion US dollars, that's 60% up year on year, the highest ever. And direct commercial sales, 158 billion, up 2.5%. Um, Mr. Joe, let me go to you first. What is the difference here? How should we understand the foreign military sale and direct commercial sales? Uh, I think the United States, uh, obviously, is the largest arms sailor in the, in the world. Uh, the, in the past, it was followed by Russia, but Russia's uh, arms sales certainly has declined tremendously. So that is kind of a, a profit making uh, that would meet the interest of um, American polit uh, politicians as well as uh, the uh, uh, you know military industrial complex. Yeah, but then there is another thing that is American foreign policy that of course is heavily involved. For example, in two wars, yeah, both in uh, Ukraine and in the in the uh, Middle East. So that is a uh, totally different. Right now, we're seeing. The United States, you know, uh, uh, specifically President Biden's uh, additional plan of aid in Ukraine, very much stored in Congress. So putting all this together uh, is a very complex picture. Mm -hmm. um, Brian, uh, help us understand if you can. We were look. I was pointing to the 81 billion of foreign military sales, which is up 60 percent. Why the historic jump in your eyes? And what does that say that the overall arms sales by the United States is 16 percent higher year on year, hitting a record high of 240 billion U.S. dollars? I don't think that it's a secret that U.S. foreign policy is heavily motivated by accumulating profits for U.S. corporations and financial institutions, but also this desire to expand power globally. So they go hand in hand. And it might not necessarily be the central 
factor motivating U.S. support for this conflict in Ukraine, but it most certainly is a, a major benefit. And we can even hear officials, representatives in Washington promoting this idea of profiting from this war and thus using that as justification to continue supporting the war. Um, Professor Kuznick, what is, help us understand here, because uh, there are various terms that are being floated out there. We see military aid, we see uh, security assistance with Ukraine or to Ukraine, and then we have uh, what people are calling uh, military sales or defense trade. What are we talking about? For instance, the 240 billion US dollars, is that military assistance to Ukraine? Is that military aid to Ukraine or arms sales? I mean, related to Ukraine of, and of course, other countries who are willing to buy it. Probably all of the above what, what's involved. US military support is logistic support, intelligence support. It's training on weapon systems. I mean, in addition to the arms sales, the weapon sales, this is all part of the, the U.S. aid to these countries. Now, very important for Ukraine so far has been the U.S. intelligence support and the NATO intelligence support, helping them with targeting, helping them with knowing where troops are located, where targets are located. That's essential on top of the weapon systems. So the U.S. has provided one weapon system after another. Initially, Biden says he's not going to provide them because he's afraid it's going to expand the war. And then he ends up providing them. Right now, the Ukrainians are waiting on the F-16s. And Stoltenberg, the NATO head, said recently that it's fine for Ukraine to attack Russia aggressively inside of Russia once these weapons are available. So that's part of the danger uh, with the, the increasing weapon sales, more sophisticated weapons sales, increasing Ukraine's capability, the fantasy that somehow Ukraine is gonna survive 2024 and go on the offensive in 2025. I mean, it's crazy talk, but that's what a lot of the American military planners are, are counting on uh, in Ukraine in 2024 and 2025. What I'm trying to say is it seems that there is um, a confusion here among the general public, both domestically in the United States and for us watching from outside. For instance, when you're talking about military aid, when you're talking about support, you're helping someone. But if you're talking about trade, if you're talking about sales, they have to pay for the stuff you're giving them, you're providing them. Um, Mr. Joe, if you help, can help us understand what is the primary form of uh, provision from the United States to Ukraine? Are they selling the weapons that they say will help Ukraine fight the war, or are they giving them, at least with, uh, at a discounted price, and who are paying for these weapons? Are they are the U.S. taxpayers or Ukrainian taxpayers? Well, I think the United States is uh, just providing them, uh, I mean, the, the Ukrainians uh, uh, free military assistance, because um, uh, when we talk about the military trade and the military assistance, that's really two uh, different concepts. For example, China uh, will also, you know, uh, do both. So that is uh, perfectly understood. Yeah, but uh, I don't believe uh, Ukraine can actually pay back 
whatever is offered. But uh, actually, this kind of uh, assistance from the United States would account uh, for very low, uh, you know, sum of uh, American GDP, according to, uh, for uh, uh, for example, uh, some American uh, columnist. Yeah. So this is affordable. But there is also another, you know, debate how affordable this can be, especially uh, when the Ukrainians actually uh, have uh, obviously suffered yeah, uh, in the so-called uh, counter-offensive. So I, I believe that in the battlefield, the situation has really uh, turned negative for Ukrainians to the extent that I don't believe they would actually mm. uh, win yeah. over Russia. Yeah. The prospect is gone. Well, I, I really want to get the concepts of what we're talking about here clear. So, uh, Brian, do you agree that it's uh, U.S. taxpayers who are, by and large, funding the kind of uh, military equipments that the United States is sending to Ukraine? And uh, what about to the neighboring countries who are also replenishing their stocks to support Ukraine? Because if Ukraine doesn't have the money to pay for the weapons, these countries should have. So um, are the bills totally footed by U.S. taxpayers or part of it? Are, are we really talking about aid as some kind of humanitarian or moral help? Or are you talking about business here? We, we have seen many different arrangements announced and, and supposedly Ukraine is buying or, or will eventually pay back the United States. But at the same time, the U.S. and Europe are subsidizing all activities of the Ukrainian government. So what money are they going to pay it back with? Ultimately, It'll be European and American taxpayers who pay for all of this, which is an irony because we continuously hear from Washington that this war is good for the United States, good for business. It's, it's good for the arms manufacturers. It really is not aid because the conflict in Ukraine is essentially a proxy war. The U.S. overthrew the elected government of Ukraine in 2014, and they created a client regime in its place to antagonize and provoke Russia and the United States is, and, and the rest of NATO, quite frankly, they are fighting Russia through the Ukrainians. Uh, it is an absolute catastrophe for the Ukrainians, the European and American public. The only people profiting, as you've mentioned, are these arms manufacturers and the politicians that serve them. So, um, Professor Kuznick, do you agree that it's uh, by and large U.S. taxpayers who are footing the bills for the so-called U.S. military aid to Ukraine? And uh, that explains why the Biden administration actually and its officials have to go on the national media to persuade the, the American public that a lot of the money is actually uh, coming back to the United States. For instance, the Wall Street Journal reported that uh, uh, one of the uh, senior Biden administration official told the media that that's one of the things that's misunderstood how important that funding is for employment and production around the country. They're talking about 60 billion US dollars they want for Ukraine among a 95 billion supplemental defense bill that passed through the US Senate earlier this month. Professor Kuznick, your take on this. Yes, this is absolutely being financed by the American taxpayers. And the point you're making is correct. Recently, in the statements calling for that aid, Biden and Victoria Nuland and Jake Sullivan have all been stressing that this money goes right back into the United States economy, which means it goes back into the pockets of these 
arms makers who during the, the 30s, after World War I, were called merchants of death. These people profit. The more people who get killed, the more bombs, the more drones, the more missiles, the more ammunition. Uh, this is the profits, profit figures for these people. They make extraordinarily high profits. And then it doesn't go into the research and development that it used to go into and is supposed to go into. It goes into their pockets. So this is, the, I think, the highest form of immorality, profiting off war, profiting off killing, profiting off of death and destruction. Uh, and in the case of Ukraine, that money is being financed by American taxpayers. With Taiwan and Israel, Israel also comes out of the pockets of American taxpayers. With Taiwan, probably more of it is being paid for by the government of Taiwan. Mm. Well, um, not just that, um, what I find really troubling, and I cannot understand this, honestly, I think very, very hard, I just cannot understand, because not only the United States is making huge profit, whether it seeks it or not is a different matter, but they are making huge profit, and they're telling the world that Americans are not dying because of this, it's Ukrainians are dying for this. For instance, the Wall Street Journal wrote very recently that while war often has economic spin-offs, these are occurring without U.S. actually doing any of the fighting. You know, it's printed for the world to see. And just now, Mr. Joe also talked about the columnist, which is William Burns, I guess, the CIA director, telling the world that with a very small investment by the United States, less than 5%, the United States is scoring huge geopolitical gains. Mr. Joe, it seems that the U.S. government, the Biden administration at this moment, <coughs> have no qualms about announcing to the world they are making a profit and no Americans are dying, and Russia is being weakened, and they're fine with it. No, I don't think so, because uh, these kind of things are always, uh, you know, arguable. Uh, for the United States, actually, the focus right now is China. And these two wars actually have siphoned away their attention, and, uh, and to a, a lesser extent, uh, their, their financial you know, burden. Uh, I, I was not quoting, you know, <clears throat> Nicholas Burns. I was actually quoting the Paul Krugman, the Nobel, you know, economic okay, vice winner. Bad. So yeah. he should be he should be accurate on such figures. Yeah. So for for the United States, the economic burden, yeah, because of the war is actually very small. But uh, they have to consider a lot of things because the United States describe Russia as a kind of a you know a immediate threat, while they describe China as a passive threat. So these two wars actually have uh, very much distracted American attention. So but the, as to how long uh, the war will, will last, uh, nobody would, would actually know. I think the difference is uh, no one knows when the war in Ukraine will come to an end. And uh, in the Middle East, nobody knows when a war that has one stop will crop up again. And that is the difference. Really. So in, uh, does the United States want the war in Ukraine uh, or is it in the interest of the United States for the war in Ukraine to drag on or to stop? Because to stop would mean loss of businesses for the corporations, you know, less jobs for the Americans. Mr. Joe. I think uh, uh, the general uh, uh, American uh, uh, impression and the impression of the West is that they cannot uh, afford to lose the war. Yeah. And they deny that they have actually triggered the war. But I would believe that they actually have triggered the war because of something happened 
long, long time ago. Because it's not that Putin actually has uh, just launched the war. It's actually the fact that uh, all the Soviet leaders, starting from Mikhail Gorbachev down to Boris Yeltsin down to, you know, Vladimir Putin, have all warned against this kind of, uh, you know, uh, what they perceive to be NATO threat. And Putin is different from his predecessor in that he not only warned against this kind of threat, but he's a man who actually has carried out you know, military operations. And that is the difference. So when we talk about this war, we can just not see, okay, what is happening on the ground and what uh, you know will happen in the future. But we have to think about the root causes. You see, Russia would not move away and Europe would not move away. So Russia and Europe have to live together. And this war has already fundamentally changed the, the security architecture of Europe as a whole. Hmm. Well, it's, it's certainly very, very complicated. Um, Brian, do you think uh, more as, as time um, passes, more people in the West, including more people in America, start to see that it's not black and white, and hence they are expressing less support for U.S. providing so much assistance to Ukraine? Because according to the polls, you're seeing a decline of support for U.S. policy at this moment. Uh, American public support for any U.S. wars predicated on the success of the U.S. media's propaganda campaigns. Uh, the only reason Americans think that this is a good idea is because the media told them, of course, uh, provoking a war on the other side of the planet is it's not a good idea. It is not good for uh, Americans. It's not good for their European allies. Uh, creating this conflict with Russia was not a good idea. And uh, despite the sales pitch that this is making Russia weaker, I think we could see all across Western headlines now, even they are admitting that Russia is stronger now than before this conflict began. So the premise that this was all built on, sold with, uh, that is all crumbling. And I think that is why Americans are starting to uh, shift in opinion. They're starting to, to realize that, yes, once again, the U.S. government, with the help of the U.S. corporate media, have lied to them. Um, the, the U.S. has a, a very limited amount of time to push these agendas forward before the American people mm. start to see through. We saw this with uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and now Ukraine. Professor Kuznick, do you think that it is becoming harder and harder for the Biden administration, for the U.S. government to persuade the American people, um, one third of which, and increasingly, uh, want to reduce so-called military aid for, for Ukraine? two reasons. First of all, there's a strong isolationist tendency in the United States that Donald Trump has tapped into. So the MAGA people, the MAGA faction, the Republican Party, the Trump supporters are much more hesitant or resistant to giving money to Ukraine, not only because it's a futile effort, but because they don't like giving money to foreign governments in any capacity. Then there's other people who are concerned because they're opposed to the war and they see what's happening there. And Ukraine, despite what Zelensky says, whether it's in Munich or the G7, Ukraine is doing terribly at the moment. The Russians are advancing and internally there's a lot of turmoil. He just fired Zeluzhny, his commander in chief there, replaced him with Sersky, a man whose nickname is the Butcher who's very unpopular with the troops, and they're retreating. So all of the happy talk is coming out, it's seeming very, very hollow at the moment. And addition, but the American media is 
filled right now with anti-Russian articles, with uh, people, all the people on the mainstream television channels. First, the Tucker Carlson interview, then Navalny's death, then these reports about Russian nuclear weapons in space, which is crazy, uh, but one negative story after another. And so the American people in the polls indicate that they want to see a negotiated settlement. And I think they have a sense that we could be back here in a year from now with a half million more people dead and still a relative stalemate on the battlefield. The Ukrainians are not going to drive the Russians out of Ukraine. And the Russians are winning at the moment, but they're at a tremendous cost. Um, Mr. Joe, what is your assessment, just to have another uh, perspective maybe, what is your assessment of uh, who's winning on the battlefield, um, the Ukrainians or the Russians or there's a stalemate? What is your observation? At the last year's Munich Security Conference, uh, the Deutsche Welle, uh, you know, the German TV interviewed me and they quote me as a title. That is, uh, Putin will not lose the war, nor will he win the war. And I believe I'm still right in saying that. Because uh, in the battlefield, right now, Russia is having the upper hand. But actually, Russia is really fighting against uh, Ukraine that is uh, fully supported by U.S.-led NATO. Because uh, the, the U.S.-led NATO believes that they cannot afford to lose. So this war will just drag on. The question is whether Trump might be re-elected because he said something like, uh, if I'm re-elected, right. I can resolve this issue in 24 hours. Yeah. But what does that mean? That gives you a lot of imagination. That means, you know, the United States has to do a deal with Russia. It's always my belief that actually this kind of negotiation is never between Moscow and Kiev. It eventually will be between yeah. Washington and Moscow. Well, while the battle goes on, uh, it seems that uh, huge profits, the so-called economic spin-off, will continue to roll in. And we are also looking at Israel. Um, the U.S. approved a nearly 15 billion U.S. dollar bill uh, last November, committing 14 billion U.S. dollar this month to support Israel's operations. And uh, there are two uh, packages, so altogether worthy of 30 billion U.S. dollars in total. And before that, an annual 3 billion U.S. dollars of aid, so-called aid, is given to Israel. Um, Brian, are we looking at a similar picture in terms of gains for the corporations in the defense and uh, space contractors? Yes, uh, this this is how the, the arms industry in the United States make their money by selling weapons all around the world, uh, all around the world, fueling conflicts that the U.S. has ultimately engineered or, or uh, underwrites. That, that is exactly what's going on in the Middle East. But beyond profits, the United States seeks to destabilize all of these regions of the world, Europe, the Middle East, Asia Pacific, uh, because all of these regions are moving on out from under U.S. primacy. They're making their own decisions. They're moving on without Washington. The best way for Washington to reassert itself because it excels in uh, manufacturing arms and producing conflicts, it is to destabilize these regions in the hope that it can, can reassert mm. itself, as, as it has in Europe. It has 
very yeah. successfully well, done it in uh, Europe. It, they want to replicate this. When it comes to Taiwan, it seems there is a um, diverging trend between what the U.S. says and what the U.S. is doing. For instance, uh, uh, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was talking about stabilizing relations with China and taming what uh, U.S. policy is concerning that region. But on the other hand, Professor Kuznick, the U.S. announced just days ago that it's uh, approved military sales to Taiwan of a so-called advanced tactical data link system upgrade planning and related equipment for an estimated cost of 75 million U.S. dollars. What exactly is that system that's being sold now? Well, the Link 16 system is allows for real-time communication between the allies in a military situation. It enables interoperability between the various militaries. So the Americans, NATO, South Korea, Japan, Australia, could all be communicating in real time in an operation over Taiwan, for example or to defend Taiwan if China moves militarily. If the mainland, uh, yeah. So, you know, but that's that's the assumption. Okay. But we see all these warnings. You know, Rand Corporation issued a report back in 2015 saying that the fighting would likely occur by 2025. We had General Minihan recently saying he thinks the U.S. and China will be at war by 2025. Admiral. Uh, Davidson had said 2027, but we see the U.S. preparing for war in the Pacific. The U.S. has militarized that. Four more bases in the Philippines, the AUKUS arrangement, the Quad, uh, closer ties with South Korea now that Yoon's in charge there. It's, it's a very, very ominous situation. Mm. And there's no guarantee from an American standpoint that the Americans would win yeah. a military confrontation yeah. with China. Mr. Joe, let me come to you to wrap up uh, these uh, questions. What does it mean for uh, the U.S. to approve sales of so-called Link 16 uh, system to Taiwan? Does it mean that the U.S. is treating Taiwan as a quasi-NATO partner? No, I, I don't think so. I think the United States is really trying to turn Taiwan into a so-called porcupine. So no matter how they talk about one China, which is that we always do, but that's actually trying to provide more and more military assistance to Taiwan. But the question, the real question is, how much does all this kind of military assistance would really matter for mainland? I don't think so, because for, for two obvious reasons. Number one, Taiwan would not move away. Number two, time is on the side of mainland. We still harbor this good intention of peaceful reunification but we have to prepare for the worst. Mm. Again, for arms sales, for, for you know the big weapons industry, this is good business. Anyway, um, I'm running out of time for this discussion. We talk about it next time. Many thanks to my guests, uh, Mr. Joe Buell, Brian Berletic, and Professor Peter Kuznick joining me for this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. On behalf of the whole team, thank you for joining us. You've got The Point.